Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stocking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! The Forbes Under 30 podcast is brought to you by the all-new crossover Toyota CHR. Edgy, stylish, and fun to drive. Visit toyota.com slash c dash hr to learn more. Embrace the unexpected. This is Forbes Under 30 on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Goldblum. On the Forbes Under 30 podcast, we talk to young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs... Today, we have Galen Welsh. He's the co-founder of Jibu, a company that trains people in Uganda, Rwanda, and Kenya to own Jibu franchises that bring clean drinking water to their communities. Uh, Galen, thank you for for being with us here. You're all the way in uh, Kampala. That's right. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate the strong uh, stream we have, the, the Skype connection here. Yeah, it sounds really clear. So let's start with, I mean, just tell me where you are. What, what does it look like where you are right now? <laughs> um, I actually just hopped back from the office to my apartment, and I'm overlooking a, what's called Komocha Slum. Um, and it's, uh, it's green, and um, it's kind of perfect weather. It's about 80 degrees out. <laughs> There's a motorcycle stage right beneath me, so I'll try to go on mute whenever one of them... Uh, Whenever one of the motorcycle taxis picks up somebody and goes by, because you'll hear a little roar each oh, time. You know, I, I want to know how long you've been in Uganda, and can you tell us the origin story? It just to set up what Jibu is for for listeners. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, G, uh, what Jibu is is a clean water social franchise network. So, what we do is equip entrepreneurs and capitalize them to start their own safe drinking water businesses. So essentially we asset finance them so that, and then set them up with a full water treatment system and retail front where they can take water from any source, treat it, and then distribute it to the neighborhoods right around them. And so you, you're setting up these franchises as, as many business opportunities locally, right? Exactly, yeah. They're each independent for-profit businesses um, that are owned by local entrepreneurs, mostly youth. And so could we get a sense of how many, when did you, when was the first uh, franchise that you created? What was the first um, Jibu that you set up and how many have you, do you have now? Yeah, so the first were up and running the end of 2013 um, and then we had only two going into 2015 um, and now we have about 200 and three units um, that we've set up and um, and about uh, 150 of those are micro franchises so they're um, distribution branded distribution outlets that buy wholesale from existing franchisees and redistribute the water uh, and then we have uh, you know a little over 50 fully fledged franchises who have a full water production plant um, and produce much higher volumes. 
So it's been since since 2000. So between 2015 and now, we've grown from two to um, a little over uh, a little over 200. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're incorporated as an L3C limited liability, low profit corporation, right? That's right. Yeah, it's it's really similar to a benefit corporation entity. It just gives us a chance to enshrine our social purpose within our operating agreement or the the bylaws of the organization, so that it's clear to all of our stakeholders that we're not just about profit maximization, we're really about uh, the impact, which is making safe drinking water affordable and also equipping emerging market entrepreneurs to have their own businesses that meet infrastructural needs. All right, well, we're going to get more into this, but we want to learn a little more about you, Galen. You tell us you grew up in Colorado, right? <laughs> yep, that's that's right. So I uh, my family moved there when I was, I was about six years old, and then I did school in Chicago, um, and I studied international development, actually, um, in English. Um, but then I, I joined the Peace Corps just after school, um, and I was in North Africa, Morocco. And that sort of is what shaped my belief system about how to do development work in emerging markets. Um, and, and essentially, I came away with uh, two major learnings, um, one being that uh, I think market-based solutions are more sustainable than a lot of the other solutions I was seeing from a traditional standpoint. And um, I wanted to find a solution that's fundamentally not patronizing to the beneficiaries mm-hmm. and really relies on eye-to-eye partnership. Um, and so that's how we've structured Jibu is how can we equip entrepreneurs um, to co-invest and then truly be their own owners and, and get away from donor dependency for long-term growth of the business you didn't want so that we can really meet these infrastructural needs without, you know, without being limited by, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the need to keep, continue to go back and, and, and raise donations. I think we can take a minute here, and if you want to, there's such rich sound coming from where you are. Do you want to set up for us what you're looking at, what's going by, just so uh, listeners have a sense of, of what we're hearing? <laughs> sure. Sorry that I... No, um, it's yeah, great. This is the quietest place I can find. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm overlooking uh, a motorcycle taxi stand. So there's a few folks going by, and they're getting on motorcycles and riding into town. And then um, there's a japati stand. Japati is like a... Um, pancake type bread and then um, they make what what they call Rolexes which are just uh, um, eggs wrapped in that bread it's just one of the most common street foods here so it's a little it's not a major market just like a little uh, a few little um, dukas a few little shops outside my (laughs) outside my apartment and there's children running around there's children running around there's there's uh, someone doing a little construction (laughs) building a little Little shack over here. Um, yep. <laughs> I can tell you, Kalen, it's, it's it, uh, Galen, It's super more. It's much more interesting than uh, what I'm looking. I'm in Beverly Hills, staring at a Macy's sign. So. Oh no! Have... That's. <laughs> well, you should you should hop on over here and do yeah. some do some in person interviews next that, time. That would be great. When you went into the Peace Corps, what was it that you wanted to achieve? What was it that 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 um, you know? triggered that for you what was it that drew you to that i i don't think i was ever sort of victim of that save the world mentality i really joined so that i could learn more about another culture in another place um, and the thing that was appealing about the peace corps is they do a really good job of of throwing you in integrating you 
to a, to a, a community. And, and they do a really good job of teaching an, another language. And so for me, you know, truly I'm becoming fluent in another language was critical to really understanding another culture. So I figured before I jumped into my career full swing, I wanted to sort of have that, that base and that platform with how to think about life <laughs> in general. So, so I, I, I definitely got that out of, the, out of the Peace Corps. And I think a lot of other things I wasn't expecting, you know, as far as um, a different understanding or appreciation of how, you know, how business can be used for, for social good, um, as well as uh, just this belief in, in eye-to-eye partnership and finding, you know, ways to empower people in a non-patronizing way. Well, talk about the, the the patronizing. You 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 have said in the past that it was there was a soft and a mushiness to the Peace Corps that you you sort of innately rejected. What do you mean? Yeah, well, with the projects I did there, I would have to raise funds, um, and then sort of um, raise them in accordance with the expectations or guidelines from donors. And there there was there's only good intentions, um, I think, on all sides. But ultimately, I think the the locus of power, local locus of control, is really where the money is coming from um, in the end. And ultimately, if that's not based locally, it's uh, a little disconnected from from the reality on the ground. So, what that means is, is it becomes really easy to just sort of um, tell stories uh, because of the lack of context, usually with where the the money is originating from, um, and then that that allows you know, certain initiatives or programs to continue to grow bigger, even though they're not necessarily the ones creating the biggest impact from a local's perspective. And um, actually, before the Peace Corps, I worked in I worked in Goma, in DR Congo for a summer okay. during an internship. And, and, and I sort of had this really strong juxtaposition there of working with this little scrappy local hospital that was locally run and owned. Um, and it was sort of overshadowed by the by a large um, <laughs> um, the, well, the second largest UN peacekeeping force, the staff at the UN peacekeeping force, the doctors weren't allowed to actually treat locals. Um, okay. They were only allowed to treat um, soldiers that were, you know, wounded in action. But the soldiers weren't allowed to take action because they they had a mandate to be to play defense only. Um, and then our hospital was just inundated um, with this massive waiting list that you know lasted for for months at a time. Um, and it was sort of all hands on deck. Everyone everyone working all the time. And 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 I just—I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to <laughs> speak speak badly about the UN. It was just that juxtaposition of, you know, where um, I think there could be more strategic use of resources if locals are just empowered to um, be the decision makers on how how they're how they're leveraged and used in a better way. And I think the UN's an exception because of all the. You know stipulations around the government funding that's going into it, and it's probably hard to decentralize that. But it just led me to the realization about, you know, how powerful market-based solutions can be to try to shift the needle on some of these things. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And introducing an all-new crossover Toyota CHR. Embrace the unexpected. It's a little edgy and effortlessly takes center stage with its distinctive style and unique spirit. Agile handling helps show off its athletic side with a driver-focused cockpit that keeps you in command, whether you're cruising through the city or taking on your favorite winding road. 
uniquely expressive. CHR's precision cut lines let it shine from every angle. Born from the ingenuity of a race car driver, CHR is designed to maximize driving pleasure every time you turn the wheel. Know that while you embrace and express that bold spirit in the smartest way possible, tucked away neatly throughout your CHR are advanced safety features and measures that are designed to help keep you alert and safe in the event of an accident. Because as any good driver knows, accidents can happen, and when it comes to driving, the best defense is a smart offense. Visit toyota.com slash c dash hr to learn more. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. So you had your experience in the Congo, and you had worked in the Moroccan desert. So what was it that compelled you to go to East Africa, provide clean water and business opportunities in a region that you know really is in short supply of both of those things? What was it that... Uh, that compelled you to go do that? How did you know that was what you needed to do? I guess the connections in Goma um, sort of are included in the sort of East Africa network, or even though it's not technically East Africa. So that was sort of a starting point. Right. And then I co-founded it with my father. And he sort of was coming out of you know a long career in the private sector as a high-tech entrepreneur. And it was sort of a convergence of of passions where he wanted to do something where he could leverage his his business expertise and his skills to, to you know to try to make a difference and so then when I came back and was I was planning on moving to DC and getting into um, another organization there um, I kind of expressed to my parents you know what this is this is what I'm thinking and um, where I want to go and eventually go get my MBA and then and then use you know use business to to go back over right. Um, he he had you know he he sort of talked about well you know there's there's this there's this idea with water and then you know, at first I, I thought you know I'd never I, I, it was hard to imagine working with my father it's not like we had some <laughs> special close relationship growing up or something it was just sort of this convergence of uh, of passions and um, I wanted to I wanted the business that was set up to be a basic need so something like health or water a black and white issue that that doesn't take um, uh, that has less risk of being a, <laughs> having a, adverse effects um, in society, and I think water is just one of the most basic needs. And everywhere I'd been in emerging markets, it was it was a need. Um, you know, our 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 founding passion is this eye to eye partnership, and how can we use that to meet infrastructural needs? So there was nothing there was nothing even special about water except for the fact that it's a black and white issue, um, where we felt like it was a good starting point and sort of the lowest hanging fruit as as far as a global challenge um, to 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 address. Well, it seems like it's about incentive, it's about morale, it's about opportunity. So it is about so much more than water. Exactly, exactly. Where does the where does the name Jibu come from? Yeah, so when I worked in Goma, there was a, a supermarket um, that had they used the word Jibu in their name, and so it was one of the only Swahili words I remembered, and um, it means it means the answer um, or the solution, just like the English English word an imperative. It can mean respond, um, but it can also mean the solution. So um, I sort of we sort of tested it out in in the different markets we were looking at, um, and I liked it because it was short and sort of um, 
can is memorable even without even if someone doesn't know the, what 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 it means, um, and so that's why we we went with that because we we felt like you know we we don't want it to be we don't want the name to be water or this or water that we want it to be, you know, respond or a solution um, ultimately. So that whole idea about us being an opportunity company that's really that's really a what's behind the name also. Well, I have to ask you. I mean, you say you you didn't grow up with any kind of special relationship with your father, but it is certainly is unique to get a business off the ground of this magnitude with your dad, who's Randy. Uh, so his name is Randy. Well, tell me, how did that how did that come to pass? <laughs> well, I, the, the funny thing is, neither of us ever decided, like one day, that we're just going to do this. We just kind of were talking about it and mulling over it, and then we're kind of like, okay, well, let's spend a little time looking into this further and then i think after about two weeks of like looking into it further then we just were both caught up in it full time and decided to just put everything towards it so um i think uh it's uh i mean i I think i think also i mean i had a special i had an unfair opportunity really working with my father because um he he funded our pilots so he was the first angel investor Um, and uh, funded the pilot. So then, we, you know, to go to be able to um, go and raise our first round of financing, we already had this proof of concept, um, and it was his, you know, his capital funding it as well as his experience and you know all of this his business experience that helped accelerate that success originally um, that we were able to leverage to grow pretty quickly. Well, let me ask you, not to get all Dr. Phil, but does it does it um, is it ever difficult? <laughs> I mean, at that level, I. I I can imagine that if if my dad helped me with something, you know, it would be great because you get to make it. But at the same time, there are some strings attached. Has that ever been a challenge for you? <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, we definitely we definitely have our challenges. We, we've uh, we, we've gotten we've gotten better at at you know handling handling them internally and not <laughs> airing it out on a on a call or anything and actually I call him Randy now because it's actually less awkward than saying you don't want to be saying well, what dad, do you think, around, dad yeah. on a call on a call or something <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, I I think we've made I mean and also I mean being I me being based in Africa and him in in Colorado I think that that makes it less um, contentious than it might be if we were, you know, in the same office or something. So, uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> we've definitely had our share of problems and and fallouts here or there. But um, in the end, I think actually it makes it having a blood connection actually makes it, uh, you know, it makes it um, more sustainable maybe than if it was just a friend. I think we would have thrown in the towel a long time ago if it was just a friend and said, no, this is too, this is too hard. So, well, tell me a little bit about how have you been perceived as an American coming in with a business idea, um, you know, that's going to, you know, bring a lot of opportunity for people, but it also imposes uh, a certain level of success and, uh, you know, system into a new culture. So have you, have you felt any cultural pushback since you've started? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, I mean, every day. I mean, that's that's sort of the challenge with with eye to eye partnership is really anything we do, even with this franchise model. You know, we don't have any direct line of control or say on things. We kind of have to make things compelling enough uh, organically, um, you know, from a local perspective, to be adopted and accepted and used. Um, and and so that that creates a lot of inefficiencies in, in getting stuff done. But at the same time, I think it, we're actually building real foundations 
and we're making making sure that anything we produce is actually meeting a local need um, according to according to locals um, so so I, I think there is that you know there, there is that that pushback always um, but I think I think it's healthy and necessary um, for us to sort of have our feet to the fire and go through that crucible of making sure that what we're creating is relevant and needed yeah I mean there must be some specific political or governmental um, hurdles that you've had to face, I mean, that we read about. Can, can you give us any examples? <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know what I should – hopefully I don't say anything stupid that would well, – It's me. your decision, whatever um, you want to share. I, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to, think of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the PC way to share some examples. So, I, I mean, I'm, okay, one big thing is um, in East African markets, there's actually an excise tax um, like a sin tax or luxury tax on drinking water. Um, and it, it's pretty backwards. You know, you would think that the government would have the same interest in providing a public service. Um, but that's been across the, you know, the countries we're in right now, that's been one of the big challenges. Um, and we sort of have uh, different approaches in each country as far as how we've had to deal with that. Um, but it, it's just interesting because, you know, enterprise, you know, water, Water enterprises in India, you know, for instance, are getting subsidies from the government um, to support their operations, and um, and here it's sort of the threat of of getting penalized. And then, um, you know, the other pieces are there's sort of a well, there's a lot of um, informal corruption that um, makes it take a lot longer to get things done when you're not complicit in it. Um, so. Like for for instance, to get our our certification to sell water in Uganda, um, it took us 18 months um, because we weren't willing to sort of pay the, exp- the expedited fees or whatever. <laughs> you don't pay those. Um, you don't pay those fees. No, we don't. Um, so 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 that's why it took a lot longer. But again, I think we have a much stronger foundation because our reputation, you know, as we grow is that we don't do that. So, pure. you know, eventually I think uh, folks just kind of give up on trying to get it out of us. And it's like, okay, you're just going to keep pestering us until we get, <laughs> until we get this done for you. So, um, but it's very different. Every, every market we operate in is very different. Um, you know, Rwanda, there is, we've never encountered corruption whatsoever. I and mean, it's been very transparent and efficient working with the government actually. So um, it really, it really is case by case. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Hi, I'm Tavis Smiley. You may know me from my PBS talk show. I'm excited to tell you that I have a brand new podcast that you can hear on podcastone.com starting this July. I'll discuss the latest in politics, sports, music, and much more with big thinkers, artists, and celebrities. I'll also share my own opinions and answer some of your questions. So join the conversation this July on the Tavis Smiley podcast coming to podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However you move your business forward, with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. 
What are some of the most prominent or routine cultural differences that you faced? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I would say, I mean, I would say there's so much in language. Um, just, you know, a lot of times there's, there's, there's really a similar understanding or meaning or comprehension of how something works underneath the surface, but how, you, how it's said and how it's presented can just really make the wires cross and, and create a lot of miscommunication. So um, I think even with um, with everyone speaking, you know, a sophisticated level of English, there's still there's still just those cultural miscommunications that happen. Um, but I think there's also I think there's also something about speed um, and uh, aggressiveness that maybe is an American cultural trait. That it has to be sort of uh, has to be uh, uh, I don't know what to call it sugar coated or sort of smoothed over um, in order to be accepted here and 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 so um, there's there's this compromise that has to be made um, with the speed I want things to go and <laughs> the speed that mm-hmm. that the, you know the broader market wants wants things to go in so so I think I've learned a lot about patience uh, and also about how to better. Um, hopefully, how to better tell the story and, and, and make things compelling rather than than than, um, than than forceful as far as getting getting things done. You know, you've um, there's a great line that you said you, you, you want to hire street smarts over QuickBooks. I think it was in reference to uh, hiring local versus American. So, how do you ensure that decisions are made? Well, you know, how do you, how do you how do you hire? What 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 type of team have you built? Yeah, it's a great question. So, we definitely look for locals in in all situations. I think that's more sustainable in the long term. And um, like you said, I I think there's there's no value you can really put on street smarts um, over just academic skills. And I think if if sort of Western trained academic skills were what was needed um, to really uh, change the game. In emerging markets, then we would have done it many times over already. Because I think we have there. There are a lot of the smartest people in the world, um, you know, from from a Western educational institution standpoint, working on a lot of these issues. But I think that um, a lot of times leads to being a, a few steps removed from the real issues at hand. Right. Inevitably, because you didn't grow up in, you know, in in the house and in, in, in a house here, and you don't know exactly all those cultural implicit things. So, so there's been so many times where, you know, for instance, I'm pushing something and I'm pushing as hard as I can and talking to all the political leaders and trying to get something through and I just can't. And it's, it's, it's uphill battle, you know, and then, you know, I'll have one of our local staff go and have a conversation and they talk for 20 minutes and then they, they have a common understanding and everything just, you know, all of the sort of problems just kind of evaporate. Um, right. And so there's, there's that, there's that street smarts, but also the you know political equity and relational equity that locals have, and 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 um, I, I think there's a lot of times. I mean, uh, what you see, I think, uh, with a lot of bigger companies that come in, um, locals a lot of times are excluded from decision-making positions, and then aren't exposed to those experiences right. that really allow someone to become world-class leaders and, and, and managers. Um, and then um, on the other side, there's, there's high-paying um, NGOs, which put folks in decision-making positions, but they're um, 
a lot of times the the power they're wielding or the the work they're doing is not fundamentally centric to what's happening in the market or what's most important in the market because it's uh, constricted somewhat by the parameters of uh, of the mandate of the of the of the broader NGO. Um, so um, all that to say, I. I believe in local hires. That you know, that doesn't mean that our whole staff is local, because um, different times it's been just cheaper and easier and faster to fill a gap um, with an right. expat. Um, so so, but and, and I do think that intellectual trade is really important. Um, I think I think the intellectual trade between um, a foreigner and a local is really that's what creates the recipe. That true diversity of background. Um, that creates the recipe for for real innovation. So you can see how hiring local improves your credibility and communication on the ground. But what have you learned specifically from putting um, local hires in truly uh, decision making leadership roles? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I have learned that you know, some of the decisions that are made are. are surprising to me and, and a lot of times don't feel right. <laughs> right um but they end up working out um and then there's other things where i feel like wow there's you know i'll get really stressed out why, why aren't we why aren't we doing you know xyz and it turns out that that wasn't really something that truly wasn't something we had to worry about galen you've said that you know you gave 100 percent ownership to local partners and, and you've said that they're already innovating in ways that only a local owner could. So can you talk about how, explain how that works and, and what are those examples of, of, of innovation? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, I say from the ground up, our, our entire model has been built um, from local innovation. So, you know, we, we realized we had to, well, let me just talk about like the, how we, how we distribute the water. So originally the model I had envisioned was, just install a water treatment system, and then folks come up with their own bottles, fill their bottle, and, and go home. And um, and that would never have worked in these urban contexts um, because there just ultimately would not be a value proposition built into that that water. And going to fetch it yourself would be no different than it would be hard to distinguish that water from the already you know already existing tap water that's unsafe um, in communities. So. So what we realize with our local partners is that um, we have to create, we have to position the water in a way that creates a really strong natural value proposition. So what you know what the, the mobile I always sort of tell the story about the mobile phone industry in East Africa. There's always an assumption that because mobile phones were meeting a real need um, in East Africa, that that and they were just the great technology that overnight everyone had mobile phones. But the real story is, you know, the first mobile phones were only affordable by the ultra wealthy and politicians. So anyone you saw walking around would, you know, with a big brick phone would be, you know, a president or a, a big business guy. Right. Um, and so that sort of created an understanding of the utility of a cell phone, the purpose of it, and created this class association or aspirational quality around cell phones. So so the, the bottled water industry has done the same thing. So, you know, Dasani and Coke and you know others have been mm-hmm. here and on billboards you see sports stars and everyone drinking drinking bottled water. So there was there was this this sort of value proposition built around you know bottled water being a lifestyle product and some you know and better than than tap water. So so then you know it led to this realization. Well, if we if we can package the water in reusable bottles, so we don't create that plastic waste and we don't create that cost, um, then maybe you know we'll generate demand. So so that's that's how we we sort of 
designed our bottles to be transparent and all of these sort of aesthetic qualities and then um, user-friendly with the tap and all of this. And, and I think that's why we haven't had an uphill battle generating demand. We've had that, that organic demand because um, the question is, you know, how could it be so cheap rather than, well, why would I really buy that? To step back a little bit and, and give people a sense of how the business works, you know, there's like a, it's a turnkey model, right, that you have licensing these different franchises and what you call startup packages. So can you just explain, walk us through how that works? Right, yeah. So so to start with like a traditional franchise, private sector franchise in the U.S., like McDonald's or something, a franchisee would come and they would pay for a full build-out of a McDonald's location. So they would buy all the equipment, all this, get signed off by the franchisor, McDonald's corporate, and then they would they would start selling and give royalties back to McDonald's or something. So so we've we've combined that franchise model with financing, asset financing. So essentially we build out a full shop. So so we find a location in a high visibility area, we install a water production line. Um, in the back of the store and then a water storage area and then a retail front like a highly branded retail front and we put all of the assets needed to for that business to go um, and then we uh, we have a co-invested entrepreneur take ownership of that shop and then and then run it and hire his hire his or her own staff um, and and grow the business so so they really walk into a fully outfitted water business um, where they, they're able to focus on growing their customer base and managing their team. And you say it's, it's sort of similar to filling up like a propane tank for your barbecue here in, uh, in the States. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we designed our own bottles and, and, and they're designed to last even longer than a standard sort of water cooler bottle. Um, and they have a handle and tap, and, and a customer brings back their empty and, and picks up a, a full one. Um, or it's delivered to their doorstep um, through bicycles or motorcycles or um, tuk-tuks or you know, whatever, wherever the local distribution channels are. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. Business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source. However you move your business forward... With Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Do you want to tell us, I mean, you are the president, right, of Jibu? Uh, I'm the CEO. CEO, you're the CEO of Jibu. But you say that that position, you're sort of also the CFO, the COO, the creative editor-in-chief uh, you're, you're so many well, that was we're moving fast. So that I mean, I would say probably you know a year and a half ago or two years ago that was the case. But now we have we we really do have a world class team. Okay. So we so, have a CFO and we have um, uh, we have a COO and um, and a, a head of international expansion. And so we, we've we've gotten together a really incredible team. Um, and I and I and I'm just. Um, I'm probably the least qualified and youngest on the team now, so I'm not. I don't have to. Luckily for the business, I don't have to play all those roles anymore. Yeah, I think I'm taking that. I'm lifting that from your blog that you used to have, um, from uh, you know, writing about your experiences. But looking back on them, what was that like to have all the, to wear all those different hats and 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 be responsible for all those roles? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's I think it's a necessary sort of journey an entrepreneur has to take in order to intimately understand every facet of the business. Uh, I, I think it's it equipped me to, well, I think in general, comprehend business in a, in a different way and, and develop gut instincts about things. Um, but I think it's also equipped me t- to be a better manager um, as we've grown the team because I have that baseline knowledge or the fundamental sort of philosophical um, core of what each department or each function needs to accomplish. Um, so, so, uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for getting to wear all those hats. And I think that's kind of the, I think one of the funnest parts about being an entrepreneur is you get to do something different every day and, and you really get to just create a lot of things and problem solve. Well, I, I want to ask you about to unpack one quote that you gave because it struck me as interesting. You said that concentrating on the people who make up or lead an organization doesn't mean we continue making celebrities out of a handful of people. It means investors focus on holding entrepreneurs accountable to core values as entrepreneurs have defined them. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So I guess there, you know, there's this whole social enterprise sector that's emerged. And you know, I think it's sort of all about sort of celebrating I mean, finding things to celebrate um, you know sometimes perhaps prematurely and and creating celebrities out of the uh, out of the sector um, and, uh, that was the first part I was talking about and the and the second part is um, uh, you know I, I I think there's a lot of times an overly pr- a desire to make impact um, or the difference being made in the world prescriptive um, or, or overly defined. Um, and I think all those metrics are really valuable, but ultimately I think it's, it's fluid and, and, and really what, mat, you know, what matters is the, the core values of an organization being baked in such that you know, as it evolves and changes, it still has the agility to accomplish its mission over time. And, and so holding that entrepreneur you know, or founders accountable right. So their stated values and mission, I think, is 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 even more critical than saying, you know, here's these um, external metrics uh, that should be met. Um, and I think that that allows innovation to continue to happen in the organization in the long term, and also ensures that there won't be any sort of bureaucracy or nonsense that happens. It will all be about the mission. So, so uh, I, yeah, I was just trying to trying to um, you know make a case for really really pinning down entrepreneurs and what are their values what it, you know what's driving them and, and 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 that's what investors need to be dissecting and looking at and holding accountable you know an entrepreneur accountable to you know galen there's like this there's this impression not to take anything away from these organizations because they are so important but there's an impression that people who have with peace corps or things like teach for america that people fly into high conflict or underserved areas and then fly out pretty quickly. But you, you've been in East yeah. Africa for several years now. What's the where? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do next? What's the future look like for you? <laughs> well, I need to think about it more. Um, mm-hmm. I always kind of put that question off. But um, uh, you know, I, I I think Jibu as a solution is relevant to the entire world. Uh, well, I mean, to the entire emerging market. Um, so places all over the world, and. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it will be important and, and fun to, you know, to help Jibu grow in, in new markets. Um, and I like sort of that scrappy 
the scrappy sort of um, creative phase uh, of building the business. So um, I think that, that those, those are the I'll, I'll probably be um, uh, in some of our frontier markets <laughs> in the next yeah. few years. And we're expanding with a we're sort of decentralized. Um, our expansion too. So, so we're using, uh, we're sort of a, a franchising the mothership, so to speak. And so, rather than doing it ourselves with international expansion, we're we're equipping local investors in other markets to take the Jubu model, and 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 grow the number of of businesses in those markets and 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 the, and the safe drinking water access. And finally, I mean, we know that you have a healthy relationship with Randy, but what is the what does your personal life look like? <laughs> Over there, what 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 is your so, how what does your personal life look like? <laughs> well, yeah, um, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to find a balance. Um, you know, I think since I've since I do have a, you know an awesome team together, and um, I think it I think it's become more and more important um, as the role as my roles become more you know people management and more political and all of that to really have uh, more of a life balance. Whereas before, it's all about just pushing you know, all of the things on my own. Um, so I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to find more of a, more of a life balance. Um, I, uh, uh, it's actually my birthday today and I'm going to, Oh my God. Happy um, for you buried that. You buried happy birthday. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going with, a um, with a few friends out to an Island in the, in Lake Victoria, and we're going to camp and then hike up there uh, over the weekend. So that you know, I think that's the most that's the most cathartic thing for me is just you know, getting out of the city and being in nature for a little bit. So that's that's, that's one of the things I do to recharge. I have one more question here, Galen. Can can you tell me how many jobs that you've generated and and how many uh, you know fresh gallons of water? That Jibu has generated. Yeah. So uh, today we've generated over 650 jobs and uh, over 25 million uh, liters of water. Wonderful. That we just wanted to get those metrics in there. Uh, but th- I think that's all. And uh, Galen, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Steve. Have a good day. All right. Take care. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcastone.com. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he'd never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. 
I'm Ed Donahue.